You know, this morning we gather together and we celebrate, celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And there are people who might look at us or look at other Christians who are celebrating and they might think, actually, we're, we're crazy because we're celebrating that somebody rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. I want to start off this sermon by reading to you from actually a New Testament theologian. And he, he has done a lot of study on resurrection and even on first century culture, the fact that there were other types of groups where a leader claimed to be a Messiah. But he emphasizes how Jesus is, and, and, and the story of Jesus is completely different. And so this is what he says. He says, in not, in not one single case do we ever hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers of any other first century messianic movement claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. In their mentality, resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. Unless, of course, he was. That's the important line to contemplate. First century thinkers would not have thought generally of an individual resurrection. Many Jews, if not all of them, thought of resurrection in a corporate sense. We will all be raised someday. Greek and Gentile thinkers would think of a resurrection as only spiritual. And so for a first century group of people to say, hey, let's come up with a story of a resurrection would make no sense to their minds for an individual to rise from the dead. This, among many other reasons, have led myriads of people throughout the centuries to believe the message that the disciples actually proclaimed. I want to share with you a few quotes from some different individuals about the resurrection Thomas Arnold, he says, No one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. John Locke said, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. Today, Millions, if not billions of people are gathered around in the open air, in huts, in buildings, in cathedrals, in homes, in warehouses, all around the globe to celebrate the resurrection, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We gather here on a day we refer to as Easter Sunday to celebrate something that happened 2,000 years ago. And again, while we celebrate other people they might feel sorry for us for doing it. Other people might be angered by what we believe. And others can be ignorant of what we're proclaiming even this morning. How is it that you can have people feeling and being affected in so many different ways as it comes to Jesus and his resurrection? This morning, what I want to do 
in this sermon is I want to take us on a quest to see how we can be assured that Jesus is risen. And then secondly, why the resurrection is so important. So how can we be assured of this and why is it so important? The main idea of the sermon today is that we can be assured that the life-changing resurrection of Jesus really did happen for people's eternal satisfaction in God. I want you to know that I am speaking, and, and my mindset is today that I'm speaking to people here who have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, and I'm speaking to other individuals who might be firmly convinced that Jesus is risen from the dead. And either way, what I want us to do is to search the testimony of scriptures and, and for you who may not trust in Christ today, that you might be convinced of who he is and his goodness. And for those of you who do trust in Christ, that your faith would be strengthened and rooted all the more. So we can be assured, but the question that we can ask ourselves is actually, well, then how can we be assured? How can we be assured that Jesus has risen from the dead? And I'm going to give you just three reasons today And this is three among many other reasons that we could go into. But I'm going to start with this one. First off is that the Gospels are historical. And that might sound very odd and weird to to say that. But the reason I do that is because we have to have some kind of baseline uh, understanding. There are different types of genres of, of writing and communication, correct? You can have poetry, And is everything in poetry to be absolutely, literally understood all the time? No, it's not. You can have figures of speech like hyperbole. You can can have various genres, but the genre of the books that we refer to as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that genre is history, which means it should be read in a certain way, correct? If it's historical, what does that mean? It is true or false, true, or it's, it's intended to be written as though it's true, correct? This, the Gospels are different than other ancient types of documents. Like if you look at the Greeks and they talk about uh, the Greek gods and things that happen there, they, they don't bind themselves to time frames in history in their stories. But the Gospels do. For example, when you have Jesus' birth, you read about the Herod that existed during that time. You read about people that we also find in other historical accounts that show up in the story of Jesus' birth. The same thing with Jesus' death. We, we find out that Pontius Pilate was there in that region. That's why uh, one of the reasons why Pontius Pilate is included in the Apostles' Creed, the ancient creed of the church, is because they're saying this is historical. This really happened. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Go in time and see this is real. So so the story of Jesus' resurrection is not communicated by the followers of Jesus as though it's just simply a tale or some odd story of a bunny that lays eggs, you know? So we go to the story that what was read earlier from Mark 16. And if we understand it's historical, let's, let's, let's just replay the scenario again. We're told that there's some women who are going to go to Jesus' tomb and they have spices that they're bringing to bring to the body. They wait until the Sabbath is over to do this. That would be in keeping with the law. 
And the reason why they took spices is because by this point in time, Jesus' body is probably stinking, and so they, they want to help with the scent with those spices. Now, on their way to the tomb, they're discussing, how are we going to move that stone? Now, the, the tomb that Jesus is in was a rarer type of tomb because it was a tomb that belonged to a wealthier individual. We hear in the, in the scenario a man named Joseph who volunteered his tomb for Jesus to be buried in, and he was a wealthy man. This kind of tomb would have a large stone that would have to be put up into this kind of ramp as it moved in front of the door. But once it's in front of the door you're really not going to be able to move that thing without immense effort. So that's why the women are saying, how do we roll this stone away? And as they, as they get closer, uh, we, we read that the ground shakes. There's an earthquake. And then we read that the guards fall to the ground because of this earthquake. But it's not simply because of the earthquake that there's, there's this feeling of disturbance. It's because this earthquake is happening while an angel appears. And I don't know about you, but I would feel nervous about that, right? And so this angel shows up and the angel says, don't be alarmed or don't, don't be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Jesus says you're seeking Jesus and he even specifies Jesus of Nazareth, okay? So He's talking about the real, historical Jesus, the one that they were with, the one who was crucified, is not here anymore. The angel says he is risen. Side note, to people who say that Jesus' resurrection was not physical, the gospel accounts simply won't allow you to believe that. The angel doesn't simply say, hey, take my word for it, the body isn't here. What does the angel say? See, look at the place where they laid him. Discover for yourself. Now at this point, we have eyewitness testimony that Jesus' body is not in the tomb. And then the angel tells the women to communicate this to the disciples and Peter and to meet Jesus in Galilee. The women do this. Jesus ends up revealing himself. Now at this point, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if individuals will say, okay, I know they're writing as if this is history, but it still sounds like a tall tale. Some Christians, um, when, when having conversations with other individuals who don't embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you're in a conversation, let's say, with somebody else who doesn't embrace Christ, you might say at this moment something like, well, just take it by faith. Just, just believe. And what, what some people mean when they say that is that just because it, it, it doesn't make sense, but just believe it even though it doesn't make any sense. Now, I will grant there are many things in this world that doesn't make sense to me. Would you say that too? There's many things we don't understand and we, and we just believe those things are true because it sure seems like that's true, Okay. But I, I might say something shocking at this point. If you're an individual right now this morning who says, I'm not sure, that mm, doesn't sound right. I, I want to encourage and challenge you to do more investigation. God has made 
this scenario of Jesus' resurrection so plain to be able to study and investigate that our faith is not simply a blind faith where we just say, hey, it doesn't make sense, I don't know, but our faith is dependent on the truth and reality of Jesus Christ and what he has done. This, by the way, is different even than other religions too. Uh, Take, for example, Mormonism. Within, within Mormonism, you have a man, Joseph Smith, and he goes out by himself, says he has an angel appear to him, and he gives him um, words from God on plates. And nobody can verify any of that. Same thing with Islam. Muhammad goes out, angel appears to him, and then he has this truth to share with people. Now here, listen. If there is going to be truth or events that will radically shape everything, wouldn't it even make sense that God would work in such a way to make it obvious to all? As opposed to just one person who says, God says everything's changing. See, with with the resurrection, these events are verifiable The Christian message is different. And so even the Apostle John, when writing his gospel account, he says, I'm writing these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John was writing in such a way so as to convince the people so that they would know without a doubt Jesus is who he said he was and that Jesus is the Savior. And not just to know this mentally, but then to depend on him, to turn to him for forgiveness and trust him for salvation. But now you could say, okay, okay, I get what you're saying. But do the gospel accounts give sufficient evidence? Does the Bible give sufficient evidence to to grow us, uh, to see what Jesus has done and to believe it's true? I actually want us to turn to another portion of the New Testament this morning. If you could, if you have your Bibles, feel free to go to 1 Corinthians 15. And what we see here, the second point, is that Jesus' literal physical resurrection is confirmed by eyewitnesses. Did you know, by the way, the denial of Jesus' resurrection is not just a 21st century issue? Did you know that? That's been going on since the beginning. It's been going on since even the first century. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is talking to the Corinthian church that seems to have people coming in claiming to be Christians, but they're denying the resurrection or the realities uh, and effects of the resurrection. And so you even have professing Christian groups who will say, who will deny realities with regards to the resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to start reading in verse 3, and I want us to see how Paul starts his argument regarding resurrection. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
See, Paul starts off his argument in the same way that the gospel writers write. Paul is saying this is historically true. This really did happen. But does Paul write about these things as though they happened in a dark corner? No. No, he doesn't. He actually emphasizes it didn't happen in some dark corner. What does he go on? He, he, Paul bases what he's saying upon verifiable evidence. He says, Peter, the 12 disciples, 500 people, the apostles, and even he has seen the resurrected Jesus. That really actually should be sufficient evidence to convince somebody of the veracity of something. Paul is basically saying to the Corinthians, if you don't believe there are 500 people in Jerusalem that you can talk to. Now, you could say, well, but that was Jerusalem. That's really far away from Corinth. But we know the travel was easier than it had been in that Roman society at that point in time. What Paul is essentially saying, there's 500, most are still alive. If you're really unconvinced, get on a boat and go to Jerusalem. Travel there. Ask the people. They'll let you know. You know, in our government's system today, the judicial system, uh, eyewitnesses are critical, aren't they? And, And sometimes, in some cases, one eyewitness can be used to convict or take away a conviction of somebody. One eyewitness, one person. And yet here, Paul is using the same type of logic, 500 and, and by the way, he says 500 men, right? So let's, just, let's start there. There's more than 500 who have seen the resurrected Jesus. Now, what's sad to me is actually I could get to a passage like this and some individuals could say, man, if that many people saw Jesus resurrected, then why aren't more people believing on Jesus? Well, that's my question right? But what some people do is they take that question and then they just let that question sit out there and so they don't believe on Jesus. Because, well, you know, more people should believe then if Jesus really rose from the dead. But do you see what an individual is doing when they're doing that? They're denying the evidence and placing their trust in the group who doesn't believe. Face the evidence. Face the reality of 500 plus people seeing Jesus. And this letter in Corinth, obviously it made its rounds. Paul's not afraid of it being verified. He's saying, verify it. So the gospel writers, they write historically. Paul says it's historic and it can be verified by eyewitnesses. And then one other evidence that I want to give this morning of the resurrection is that the resurrection changed the disciples' lives. I really love this quote by the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal who said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Do you know what he means when he's saying that? If somebody has nothing to gain and everything to lose by witnessing to something, nothing to gain, everything to lose, from an earthly perspective, then that person's probably trustworthy. This, I believe, is true of Jesus' disciples. They 
didn't have anything to gain from the world's perspective and by the world's standards. They had nothing to gain by the world's standards by perpetuating a story that Jesus rose from the dead. They actually had everything to lose, right? And they did. Look at the disciples and and then the apostles' lives. What's recorded in history is that all of them were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, except for one, and that was John. But John was tortured. He was boiled in water and then placed in exile in Patmos. What gain is this? What name are they making for themselves? That you would think that once persecution and trials comes, at least one of them would say, guys, we made it up. I'm not willing to die for this. Think back to Mark 16 and the story that Mark records, the scenarios there where the angel speaks and the angel says to the women, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. Do you, you ever find it interesting that the angel mentions Peter by name? I, mean, we, I think we can all know why. We were talking about it even on Good Friday. Peter's the one, the night of Jesus' betrayal, and Jesus is saying, all of you are going to scatter because of me. And Peter, no, no way. I'm never going to. Even if everybody else does, I will not. I will stay with you the whole time. And by the rise of the sun the next morning where the rooster crows, Peter had denied Jesus three times to the point of saying, God, pour his wrath on me if I'm lying. He called a curse down on himself. And yet here this angel with this empty tomb says to the women, go tell the disciples and don't forget Peter and Peter that he is risen and that he's going to meet you in Galilee. What do you think Peter thought when he heard this news? I mean, we know a little bit. He ran to the tomb, right? He, he, he's sprinting as fast as he can and just goes right in to see <gasps> Jesus' body isn't there. But what does this mean? What does that mean for Peter? I mentioned it on Friday night as well that Jesus said in his earthly ministry, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. What does it mean for Jesus to have risen from the dead and why does Jesus want to make sure Peter's there? Is Jesus going to finally curse Peter and say, you're all out. I've denied you before the Father. That's not what happens. We read of the encounter with Peter, with Jesus, as Jesus shows up on the shore and Peter's out fishing and Peter sees and he jumps out of the boat and he comes into, comes into the shore and they're eating the fish together. And there's not much interaction to begin with. It, it, you know, it's that silence that you know something, it, things aren't right. 
And then Jesus speaks. And what does Jesus say? Peter, do you love me? Oh. Yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus asks three times, which in that culture, three times just emphasize the point. Do you really love me, Peter? And Peter responds a third time, I love you. No, I love you. Now what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Jesus restores Peter, shows Peter that he's forgiven. How can that be? How can Peter be forgiven? It's because Jesus took the wrath that Peter called down on himself. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took the punishment our sins deserved and satisfied the justice of God in the place of not just Peter, but all the disciples and anybody else who has faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're forgiven. We're welcomed into the family of God. And that's what Peter experienced when the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. He's saying Jesus is going to speak to you to assure you that he has accomplished everything he said he was going to. Forgiveness of sins. And I also want to add a changed life. Sometimes what Christians do is they only talk about God being the forgiving God and they don't talk about the reality that Jesus came to forgive and change us so we actually love God. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Anyway, you will keep my commandments. So if we are shaped by God's love and we know his love in the forgiveness, our lives are going to change. That's what happens with the disciples. And that's what's actually really interesting with Peter as well in John 21. That Jesus restores Peter and then restores Peter to ministry. And then Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. What? That's not what I'm expecting. I mean, if I was any of those disciples, I would not expect, I'm going to die. I thought you're going to start the kingdom. Where are we talking about death here? Even Peter points over to John and says, well, how's he going to die? <laughs> right? It, I just want to make sure it's fair, you know. And Jesus says to Peter, he's like, he says, what does it matter if he lives all the way until I come again? You be faithful by my grace. Follow me. What we discover once we get into the book of Acts is that these disciples are transformed from weak, cowering, fearful, uncommitted people to bold, emblazoned, God-fearing, miracle-working servants of Christ. And again, most will die for this message. Investigate it. See how the disciples change from reading just one of the Gospels. Pick one. See how they change as you read that and then read the book of Acts. Peter goes out. Peter writes some letters under the inspiration of God. Peter's faithful in ministering to others, and eventually Peter's in Rome, and Peter dies under Nero's rule. Jesus' prophecy came true. What Jesus said happened. But here's a question to ask yourself. If Jesus' resurrection was a hoax, why would the disciples live lives suffering by the hands of people? 
if it was a hoax. But what we actually see is that the knowledge of the resurrection changed everything because it affirmed what Jesus did at the cross and it affirmed what Jesus did in all of his life beforehand. The resurrection resounds not only to them, but to all of God, all of Christ's disciples to this day, to us who believe in Christ, resounds to us and shapes our lives and changes us. The resurrection isn't just something we believe factually. The resurrection is a truth that points us to our Savior whom we lean on and depend on and cling to and live for. So those are three things. If, if somebody just were to ask me today, how do you have any confidence that this is true? That's just three things. And please don't take any one of those things by themselves. I know sometimes people will just, they'll take one and they'll try to pick it apart, take another, try to pick it apart, put it all together. And then if you still have more questions, feel free to talk to me, talk to somebody else who might have uh, ways in which to encourage you to read other things in the scriptures and, and other writings that can really point you to the evidence upon evidence upon evidence that we know this story sounds crazy. I would not believe it if it weren't for God and his grace. And he has shown faithfully the truthfulness of this. Now I can talk about how or how do we know this is true? But the next point I want to ask is why is the resurrection so important? Why? If someone were here today or if someone's listening online and they don't really have much church background, they might say, these people are way too happy. On the, this doesn't make, again, doesn't make any sense. But the Apostle Paul, in talking in 1 Corinthians 15, gives us many uh, reasons why the resurrection is absolutely essential to, to the faith of Christians. Um, some, some people might hear what I'm about to say and they'll say, man, you should just play it safe. <laughs> you don't have to believe in a physical resurrection in order to be a Christian. Which, what do you think of that? I've actually heard of professing Christians who will say, if we found the literal bones of Jesus, that would not change my faith at all. And I would say, uh, that absolutely would change my faith completely. I have been believing a lie, and I need to leave this right now and find whatever is true. I agree with John Locke, who said, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. That's John Locke. That's just what I would say. What does the scripture say? Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, if you're still there, go to verse 14. And Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Just going to work through quickly the many, many things Paul brings out 
about the importance and necessity of the resurrection. He says, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be no resurrection whatsoever. For, for any who trusted in Jesus. That's, that's one of the statements he's saying. So, in reality, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then the grave is the end for all of us. Okay? That's what we have to look forward to, the tombstone. Then Paul also says the scriptures are lying. The message that they have proclaimed and what they're speaking, they're lying, which would then mean, by the way, that God is a liar because they're inspired by God to say this. But, but he says, we're lying. Why, why, why are we lying? If, if Jesus has risen from the dead, why, why is it saying God is a liar even? Well, because God has prophesied that there was going to be one who was going to rise from the dead. Read Isaiah 53. Take time in Daniel chapter 9, other portions of Scripture, Psalms even. There's going to be this one who rises from the dead in the place of sinners. Our faith is empty. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, our faith is empty, meaning our faith is in vain. He also says our preaching is in vain. So I should not be standing here. If Jesus has not risen from the dead... I should be the first one to leave because there's no point in this. And our faith is empty. There's no real substance to it that gives it life. You know, there have been many times in the past on Easter Sundays and other times in the year where I've been talking to my dad and my dad will say something like this, hey, guess what? I've been to the tomb. And you know what? He's not there. He's not there. There are many other uh, patriarchs and leaders of various religions, and we know where their tombs are, and we know their bodies are still there. And people follow them resolutely. With Jesus, we know his body's not there. And by the way, even the enemies of Jesus affirmed at least that his body wasn't there, right? Now, they made up another story saying that the disciples stole the body away. Looking at the evidence, that doesn't make any sense. How would Roman guards let that happen? They should be killed if that were to happen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But even the enemies said his body's not in the tomb. His body's not there. But if his body is there... A full tomb is an empty faith. And so then Paul goes on and says, we're still in our sins then. Why are we still in our sins if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? <laughs> because death wins, right? Jesus has taken the sin on himself and then goes to the grave with it. And now our sins stay in the grave, which actually every human being who hasn't trusted in Christ, they live with their sins in the grave, right? In hell. If, if, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, he didn't accomplish anything at the cross. And then Paul says, Christians are most to be pitied. Please feel most sorry for us. I mean, I've already told you about the lives of the apostles why would you live that way? And then, and then say, oh, and that's it. Oh, we just love pain. We love to suffer. 
We love being put down by other people. That's just, just, oh, it's what we live for. No, what they lived for was Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And so if they die, they have Christ. If they live, they have Christ. If they suffer, they have Christ. If they have joys, they have Christ. Jesus is everything. But if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, they don't have Christ. And if they still lived this way without Jesus, yes, call us crazy. Feel really bad for us because something's gone wrong with us. But Jesus is risen. He changes everything. So Paul essentially is saying, if we believe in no resurrection, then we're just living for this life. And if we're just living for this life, it's not living for the eternal God. The world should pity us for living that lie. Now that's serious claims for Paul to make. But then Paul goes on in chapter 15 and he shows that with the resurrection, eternal satisfaction in God is guaranteed. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, or the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised, oh, sorry, skip to 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So multiple things that Paul brings out here to talk about the resurrection blessings. We will rise with a glorious new body like Jesus' body. The future kingdom will come. This is, this is not just talking about some other kingdom that garners power, but this is God's kingdom will come where there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, perfection. God is the ruler. God reigns forever. If Jesus is risen from the dead, God reigns forever. Sin didn't win. Satan didn't win. If Jesus rose from the dead, then Jesus rules today to subdue his enemies. And how does Jesus rule even today to subdue his enemies? By the power of the Holy Spirit, working through people who trust in Jesus. And as we depend on the Lord and live in this world and grow in obedience, God's enemies are taken down. Lies are destroyed. And finally, death dies. Death doesn't have the final word. Isn't that glorious? We had a funeral a couple of weeks ago with Candy Carmen. We're going to have another funeral this Saturday for Bob Ross. Both of them are rejoicing in heaven today because of Jesus. Death doesn't win. It doesn't. Amazing grace. Now, all of what Paul is saying here counters what he just said. If the resurrection weren't true and it didn't happen, uh, then we don't get any of this. But because Jesus rose from the dead, here are many blessings that we receive. As I say this, I want to make sure we keep in mind the big storyline of human history and God's plan to save. 
All the way back in Genesis, we're told the first human parents, Adam and Eve. They live in a wonderful environment, no sin. They commune with God. God made them to be vice-regents, rulers under his rule, and made them to be priests to God, worshiping him. They lived in the sinless garden, and then they rebelled, sending all humanity plummeting into the curse of sin and brokenness. We experience the brokenness still in this world. Throughout time, we still see God showing mercy and giving glimmers of hope to humanity, stating people can be reconciled to God. But God is always just. It's a confusing statement of Deuteronomy. God, God's glory is displayed in being merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but will in no wise clear the guilty. How can both of those be true? Enter Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam. He perfectly worshipped and honored God. He submitted himself to the Father in all ways. And then he chose to, in his perfection and sinlessness, he chose to actually, the Bible words it this way, to become sin in our place to take the sin of humanity on himself and the punishment that those sins deserved. Remember, like Peter calling the curse on him and Jesus saying, no, me. I take the curse. And so Jesus, being the superior Adam, rises from the dead, conquers over the consequences of sin. And in conquering over all of that sin, he rises up, he ascends to heaven, he calls people throughout all time to turn to him as their only savior. You can't save yourself. If you're sitting here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. And if you say, no, I can, then you're trusting you, not God. And God says, trust me. But Jesus rises from the dead, and because he's risen from the dead, conquering death and sin, we're also promised that God is going to restore all things and bring a new creation of perfection in order to show the magnificence and goodness of his glory, and that for all eternity, those who trust in Christ will be satisfied in him forever and ever and ever. But if Jesus didn't rise, none of that would happen. None of it. Humanity's freedom is dependent on Jesus and his death and resurrection. And I know, again, I know, this can sound crazy to some people. And some people might think of us as Christians. Do you really believe this? Maybe even sometimes you've asked yourself the question, do I really believe this? But I encourage you, read the evidence. Encourage, I encourage you to ponder this. I encourage you to continue to pray and depend on the Lord. We can be assured that the life-changing resurrection of Jesus really did happen for people's eternal satisfaction in God. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're without hope. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then the Bible is all gloriously true from beginning to end. 
So praise God for the resurrection, forgiveness, life, freedom, eternal hope are given through Jesus. I'm not going to say that last line yet. You're waiting. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ and you have more questions, there's going to be people standing up here. Please come talk to us. Maybe you're with family. You could talk to them too. If you're a Christian here today, um, I hope your faith is strengthened and that your joy is strengthened because the joy of the Lord is our strength. I also, in a moment, as people are standing up here, maybe, maybe you just need somebody to pray for you. You've got some struggles, questions. There's people standing up here after the service that are willing to pray with you, pray for you. Please come up and talk. Um, I'm going to do something that's not planned. Janelle, okay? She's nodding her head. I'm wondering if, if there's any musician still here, here, if you guys can come up and we can sing the Christ, our hope in life and death, okay? As earlier when we were singing, I was looking around at times to look at all of you, okay? Sing this to one another as we sing. The Bible tells us as the Spirit fills us, we minister grace to one another as we sing. Encourage each other with it. Let your faces show the joy that God has placed in your heart. Let this be a response. Jesus, Jesus really has risen. And so, I'm going to ask you to stand. Oh. And I'm going to say that final line as a prep for us singing this song. And when this song concludes, I'll have a benediction. Again, we'll have people up here that can pray with you or for you if you need it. Are you ready? Yeah? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. And someday, someday we will witness being with the throngs of angels and elders, which, by the way, even in the terminology of Revelation, I don't know what all that means. It's just a phenomenal picture and the saints throughout the ages. And what will we, see, what will we say? We will say praise to the Lamb, the Lamb who has taken away all the sin. Praise to Him who rules and reigns. So hear these words as we conclude our time together with this benediction. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.